1: This episode of American Biography is brought to you by our new patron, Al, who's joined the ranks of sustaining patrons that subscribe to support the podcast through our Patreon page. If you are able, and wish to help the show financially as well, just go to www.patreon.com forward slash ambio, that's A-M-B-I-O, and sign up to become a recurring donor for which you'll receive special bonus episodes, such as the one I'm currently working on about Aaron Burr, whenever they're released. Hello, and welcome back to American Biography, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This is Episode 21, Meet the New Boss. On March 4th, 1801, the sound of cannon fire rang out over Washington, D.C., It didn't signify violence or war, but announced the rising sun and the new era that it heralded. The election of 1800 had been brutish, nasty, and anything but short, taking 36 ballots in the House of Representatives to decide the contest after the Electoral College was unable to declare a winner outright. But that was in the past. Today, Thomas Jefferson would be sworn in as president. Firsts littered the occasion. The city was hosting its first presidential inauguration. For the first time, the president had provided an advanced copy of his speech to the press for quick dissemination afterwards, and for the first time, the Marine Band played for the crowds. Another break from the past occurred around 10 a.m. when Mr. Jefferson emerged from Conrad and McMunn's boarding house onto the muddy and uneven streets of D.C., Forswearing the magnificent coach and team of six his predecessors had used, he instead chose to proceed to the capital on foot, cutting the appearance, in the opinion of one onlooker, of a plain citizen without any distinctive badge of office. Nature itself seemed to endorse the proceedings, providing a brilliant late winter day that could brag a noontime temperature of 55 degrees. But even with the fine weather, the scene was surely a mix of exhilaration and foreboding. For its entire existence, the federal government had been under the guiding hand of the nationalist-minded Federalist Party, which had now lost control of all the elective houses of government and been replaced by a more states' rights-oriented, democratic element. Federalists were distraught. In Boston, the Commercial Gazette wrote, Democracy teems with fanaticism and opine that the Jeffersonians love liberty, and like other lovers, they try their utmost to debauch their mistress. Even the usually upbeat Marshall seemed on edge and struggled to maintain his equanimity, as his correspondence makes clear when he wrote, I wish, however, more than I hope, that the public prosperity and happiness will sustain no diminution under democratic guidance. The Democrats are divided into speculative theorists and absolute terrorists. With the latter, I am disposed to class Mr. Jefferson. If he ranges himself with them, it is not difficult to foresee that much difficulty is in store for our country. If he does not, they will soon become his enemies and calumniators. All waited upon Jefferson's inaugural speech, which would be delivered to a distinguished audience that packed the Senate chamber and included the newly minted Chief Justice, whom the President-elect had specifically invited there in order that he might administer the oath of office. The new President's words must have sent chills down the spines of the Federalists in attendance that day, when he said, The two opposing spirits that have been represented in a struggle to rule nature might be said to be fighting in this great period of human history to fix, irrevocably, the world's destinies and America is the scene of this fearful combat. Without, all the tyrants encircle you. Within, all tyranny's friends conspire. They will conspire until hope is wrested from crime. We must smother the internal and external enemies of the Republic or perish with it. Now, in this situation, the first maxim of your policy ought to be to lead the people by reason and the people's enemies by terror. If the spring of popular government in time of peace is virtue, the springs of popular government in revolution are at once virtue and terror. Virtue without which terror is fatal. Terror without which virtue is powerless. Terror is nothing other than justice, prompt, severe, inflexible. It is, therefore, an emanation of virtue It is not so much a special principle as it is a consequence of the general principle of democracy applied to our country's most urgent needs. Oh, wait, no, I got my notes mixed up. That's actually Maximilian Robespierre. Jefferson never said any of that, of course, though there may have very well been Federalists in the room that day that expected to hear something along those lines. Now, while I was joking... It's not an accident that I included a Robespierre quote. It serves as a relatively contemporary comparison between two prominent leaders of revolutionary republics, one that opponents maligned as a Jacobin, and the other, who was, well, the other was an actual Jacobin. Now, am I saying that if Jefferson had wanted to, he could have instigated a North American Great Terror? No, I don't think that but I do believe that Jefferson's words and tone on the day of his inauguration were bound to have a profound impact on the attitudes of the people going forward, and this influenced the course of American democracy. In short, the future history of the United States was incredibly fortunate that Jefferson was not the person his most vocal detractors feared that he was. What Jefferson's speech established that day was no less than the expected normative behavior following an American election, in a world where the other most prominent example of a large republic was France, where a chaotically bloody decade that had seen the failure of the rule of law, the scrapping of constitutions, the invalidating of election results, and systematic, politically motivated murder, eventually ending in dictatorship, had just come to an end. Jefferson's revolution of 1800, as it came to be called, was, in his own estimation, as real a revolution in the principles of our government as that of 76 was in its form, not affected, indeed, by the sword, as that, but by the rational and peaceable instrument of reform, the suffrage of the people. So, unlike Robespierre, who called for the violent cleansing from the body politic of those... The authorities labelled as enemies, Jefferson called for unity and reconciliation, even with, especially with, those who called him Jacobin. And for comparison's sake, here is some of what he actually did say During the contest of opinion through which we have passed, the animation of discussions and of exertions has sometimes worn an aspect which might impose on strangers, unused to thinking freely and to speak, and to write what they think. But this being now decided by the voice of the nation, announced according to the rules of the Constitution, all will, of course, arrange themselves under the will of the law, and unite in common efforts for the common good. All, too, will bear in mind this sacred principle, that though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will, to be rightful, must be reasonable. That the minority possesses their equal rights, which equal law must protect, and to violate would be oppression. Let us, then, fellow citizens, unite with one heart and one mind. Let us restore to social intercourse that harmony and affection without which liberty, and even life itself, are but dreary things. And let us reflect that, having banished from our land that religious intolerance under which mankind so long bled and suffered, We have yet gained little, if we, countenance, a political intolerance, as despotic, as wicked, and capable of as bitter and bloody persecutions. Every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. We have called by different names brethren of the same principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. If there be any among us who would wish to dissolve this union or to change its republican form, let them stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated, where reason is left free to combat it. Jefferson had determined that he would be gracious in victory, and his speech soothed many a nerve. Marshall was as impressed as anyone, writing afterwards, I have administered the oath to the President. His inauguration speech is, in general, well-judged and conciliatory. It is in direct terms giving the lie to the violent party declamation which has elected him, but it is strongly characteristic of the general cast of his political theory. Gracious and conciliatory or not, before long, Jefferson and the Republicans would move to implement the government reforms that they were elected by the people to enact, but before we get to that, I want to first talk about the reform program John Marshall was quietly initiating at the Supreme Court. Now, you may have picked up on this last time, but in case you didn't, the court was sort of the red-headed stepchild of the national government. For example, in 1796, as the construction of Washington, D.C. progressed, a house planning committee recommended a building for the court, since it was, you know, one of the three branches of the government but somehow the money for this never materialized. And by 1798, the idea was officially shelved because, and I quote, The immediate erection of that edifice is not considered so essential as houses for the accommodation of Congress, of the President, and the Executive Offices. So, the highest court in the land would be assigned Committee Room 2 on the ground floor of the north wing of the Capitol Building, which was sort of tucked in adjacent to the main staircase. Not entirely dissimilar from Harry Potter's room, now that I think about it, when he stayed at his aunt and uncle's house in the muggle world. In a descriptive passage, Marshall biographer Gene Smith lists some of what the court would have to make do with and what they would have to do without in the new federal capital. The court had no library, no office space, no clerks or secretaries. And the official reporter, Alexander J. Dallas, a distinguished member of the Pennsylvania Bar, had resigned rather than make the trip to Washington. Initially, there was no bench for the justices, and they sat at individual desks placed on a raised platform. Even these meager quarters were not reserved for the Supreme Court exclusively, but had to be shared with the district and circuit courts of the District of Columbia. On February 4th, 1801, a month before Jefferson's inauguration, Marshall had been sworn in as Chief Justice, inside Committee Room 2, at a lightly attended ceremony, and though there were fewer eyewitnesses to it, Marshall made his own symbolic statement by wearing a simple black robe, as opposed to the more common and ostentatious red and ermine robes favored by the other Justices that were modeled on the British fashion. On the one hand, it was a nod toward the Republican simplicity of the incoming majority, but it was a message for his new colleagues as well. As we will discuss in greater detail later in the episode, not all the justices' behavior had been above board, and their actions had bred resentment toward the court and undermined its credibility. Marshall's open rejection of the red robes adopted by the Anglophile Federalist Judges was a visual message to knock off the antagonizing of the Republicans by dressing like someone who sat the king's bench and to stop waving your bias like a flag. This would be but one of the subtle ways Marshall sought to remove the court from the political controversies of the day in order to rehabilitate its image and reassert its moral authority. As we know, a month later, John administered the oath to his cousin Tom, but then he returned home for a few months ahead of the August session when the justices would reconvene, and that's when he initiated the next phase of his plan to change the culture of the court, and funnily enough, the next phase largely dealt with sleeping arrangements.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.
1: Marshall took it upon himself to procure rooms at Conrad and McMunn's, and he got rooms for himself and for his colleagues, beginning in 1801 a tradition that, in one boarding house or hotel or another, would endure for the duration of the Marshall Court. All sources agree on the importance this move would have in forging an identity for the Supreme Court, and credit it for the remarkable cohesion displayed by that court throughout Marshall's tenure. None of the men brought their families with them, and as a group they were a diverse mix of ultra or moderate Federalists, ranging in age, place of origin, and accomplishments. In 1801, the Court was composed of Marshall and five other men. William Cushing of Massachusetts, 23 years Marshall Sr., who was one of Washington's first appointments to the Supreme Court and had previously served as Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court of Massachusetts, from 1777 to 1789, where, interestingly, he had ruled that slavery was unconstitutional in that commonwealth. Next was William Patterson of New Jersey, who was 10 years older than Marshall. He was a signer of the Constitution, a former senator that co-authored the Judiciary Act of 1789, and he'd been New Jersey's second governor before joining the court in 1793. Next we have the bombastic Samuel Chase of Maryland, he was fourteen years Marshall senior and had served in the Second Continental Congress and signed the Declaration of independence and Somewhere along the line he had earned the nickname of Old Baconface. Then there was Alfred Moore of North Carolina, unlike the gentleman I have already named. He was the same age as Marshall and had a similar background of serving as a captain in the Revolutionary War and then going into public service in his case, serving nearly a decade as Attorney General of North Carolina. And finally, rounding out the court was fellow Virginian and Marshall's good friend, Bushrod Washington. Though he was seven years younger than John, Bushrod had been on the court since 1798, and besides spending some time in the Virginia House of Delegates and attending the Virginia Ratifying Convention, Bushrod's greatest success before joining the court seems to have been being George Washington's favorite nephew, though to his credit, he seems like a nice enough guy. Future Associate Justice and Marshall Protégé, Joseph Story, describe the communal living conditions of the Justices like this. My brethren are very interesting men with whom I live in the most frank and unaffected intimacy. We are all united as one with the mutual esteem which makes even the labors of jurisprudence light. We moot every question as we proceed, and familiar conferences at our lodgings often come to a very quick and, I trust, a very accurate opinion, in a few hours. And so it was that within the boarding houses and hotels of Washington for the next thirty-five years, Marshall would work his interpersonal magic smoothing over differences of opinion and ideological rifts between his colleagues with the force of his personality and natural bonhomie. As the routine of eating, sleeping, and drinking together took hold, it's easy to imagine the judges enjoying their evenings by the fireside where Marshall has the floor spinning street yarns for everyone's amusement. As Smith writes, The justice's communal existence provided an environment in which Marshall's conviviality could flourish. The qualities of clear thinking and political insight that had made him the natural leader of the delegation to Paris, and that had propelled him to the leadership of the Adams Federalists in Congress, now were free to work their effect on five potentially fractious associates who had had little experience working together and who were profoundly jealous of their individual prerogatives. This newly forming unity found its first expression when, following Marshall's example, the other justices chose to ditch the fancy robes and opted for the judicial chic look embodied by the plain black rope, thus cementing what's become the judge's uniform, essentially, in the United States. But there was one additional structural change to the way the court operated, in its official capacity, that has had effects just as long-lasting. As the Joseph Story quote alluded to earlier, Marshall adopted a deliberative procedure that made the justices talk through the issues of a case and work towards a consensus, which had the habit of promoting more unanimous or near-unanimous decisions than the court had previously issued. As any modern SCOTUS watcher will tell you, and I'll use the modern court size today as an example... A nine to zero or an eight to one decision is a much stronger statement than a five to four decision. Now back to Marshall's time, what they did was scrap the old method where each justice expressed their individual views on a case in a seriatim opinion and replaced it with opinions reached by and signed onto by the majority of the justices. It was agreed by all. This opinion of the court should then be communicated to the public through the sole voice of the Chief Justice. However, institutional turnarounds take time, and Marshall's reforms didn't have the luxury of happening in a vacuum. Over the course of the last several years, the Judiciary had gone about losing friends and alienating people in a variety of ways. Some of these, like the Midnight Judges and the Judiciary Act of 1801, had little to do with the justices themselves, or federal judges. However, some members of the judiciary, and the Supreme Court itself, had a tendency of displaying, either through dress, word, or actions, fairly significant political bias. There was sure to be some comeuppance when the Republican-dominated 7th Congress came into session, because they just weren't going to be as conciliatory as Jefferson, Here's how Beveridge describes them in his wonderfully over-the-top way. The Republican multitude demanded the spoils of victory. Federalist taxes were, of course, to be abolished. The Federalist Mint dismantled. The Federalist Army disbanded. The Federalist Navy beached. Above all, the Federalist system of national courts was to be altered. The newly appointed Federalist national judges ousted and their places given to Republicans, and if this could not be accomplished, at least the National Judiciary must be humbled and cowed. Two weeks after Jefferson's inauguration, the able and determined William Branch Giles of Virginia, faithfully interpreting the general Republican sentiment, demanded the removal of all the Judiciary's executive officers indiscriminately. This would get rid of the Federalist Marshals and Clerks of the National Court. They had been, and were, avowed Giles, the humble echoes of the vicious schemes of the National Judges, who had been the most unblushing violators of constitutional restrictions. Again, Giles expressed the will of his party. The Revolution of 1800 is incomplete so long as that strong fortress is in possession of the enemy. He therefore insisted upon the absolute repeal of the whole judiciary system. Okay, so that was a little more Robespierre than Jefferson had been, but you have to ask yourself, just what had the judiciary been doing before Marshall got there that inspired this type of passion? Well, in general, we should start with the fact that the courts are courts, and Americans historically sort of just have a chip on their shoulder when it comes to authority figures. And when it comes to courts, when you think about it, at least half the people that end up going there go home as losers. And this causes resentment. You suffer an adverse judgment in a lawsuit? Blame the judge. Hauled before the magistrate and levied a fine for jaywalking? Obviously, the laws are unjust, and you're being persecuted for your political beliefs by a corrupt law enforcement official. Are you facing foreclosure? Sure, you're going to be mad at the bank, of course. But you're also going to be mad at the court, which facilitates the seizure process. So, a good portion of the average folks the Republicans drew the bulk of their support from had familiarity with the court, and at least 50% of them might have had a negative view before politics even got involved. Given the English and colonial background of the American judicial system that I outlined last episode, we saw how the origins of the separation of power was traditionally murkier than the U.S. Constitution states up front. And considering many members of the bar came up through that older system, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that the judiciary was more political early on. Than it became later. I mean, look, two of the first three Chief Justices, Jay and Ellsworth, literally stopped the business of the court to accept diplomatic missions at the behest of presidents and shipped off to England and France, respectively, to negotiate treaties. But it went even deeper than that, because throughout the 1790s, as historian Gordon S. Wood writes, Federalists contended that the federal courts could use something called an American common law, a body of precedents and practices drawn from the unwritten English common law and adopted to American conditions to punish crimes against the United States and its government even in the absence of specific federal criminal statutes. Now, I'm sorry, but the idea that one could be indicted, convicted, and punished for doing something that no elected legislature had ever prohibited is, to me, objectively terrifying. And the next time someone you know starts getting hysterical about activist judges legislating from the bench, tell them to stop being dramatic and refer them to this episode in history. Seriously, I don't usually give credit to Jefferson once, much less twice in an episode. But I think he sums this whole movement up nicely when he called it an audacious, barefaced, and sweeping pretension to a system of law for the United States without the adoption of their legislature and so infinitely beyond their power to adopt. So in 1800, we can see a confluence of events. You have the judiciary being used as a political football, judges wearing their politics on their sleeves. And judges' enforcement of unpopular and unpassed laws, all of which, to quote Beveridge, aroused that public fear and hatred of the courts which gave Jefferson and the Republicans their opportunity. But Jefferson made no noise about the courts until his first message to Congress on December 8, 1801, when he referenced the courts only briefly by saying, The judiciary system of the United States and especially that portion of it recently erected, will of course present itself to the contemplation of Congress, and that they may be able to judge of the proportion which the institution bears to the business it has to perform, which is a fairly clear reference to the Judiciary Act of 1801. And shortly thereafter, on January 6, 1802, Kentucky Senator John Breckinridge moved for that act's repeal. Opinion is split in the sources, whether or not this was done at the express order of the Jefferson administration, or by overzealous Republicans in Congress. And I tend to think that it is likely part of a coordinated Republican effort. But it is worth noting that Gene Smith feels, at this early stage, such a big move would not have been to Jefferson's taste because such a partisan stroke could gin up partisan rivalries nationwide, and diminish the Republicans' widespread popularity in any case, Breckinridge argued that the increase in the size and scope of the federal judiciary made by the eighteen o one reforms weren't necessary, and that the growth was unsupported by the volume of business coming before the courts, and asserted that if Article Three of the Constitution empowered one Congress from time to time to ordain and establish inferior courts, certainly that power moved in two directions, and that a later Congress, equally empowered, could choose to shrink the judiciary as well. Now, the Federalist minority in Congress lost their collective minds over this argument, as you can imagine, and objected, arguing that Article Three of the Constitution guaranteed federal judges their salaries during the continuance of office, and their tenure during good behavior. In addition, it specifically prescribed impeachment as the mode for the removal of judges, if there was an issue. To the Federalists, all of this suggests that Congress wasn't really allowed to just legislate a sitting judge's position out of existence right from under him. To this, the Republican majority would respond... You know what, you're absolutely right. We'd never dream of messing with a judge's salary or his tenure, but we absolutely can abolish the office itself, and oh, look, we have the votes to do that. And so it was that after more than a month of debates, the repeal was passed in the Senate on February 13 by a narrow margin, but then speedily approved by the large Republican majority in the House of Representatives before being signed into law by Thomas Jefferson on March 8th. Now, I know what you're thinking. Obviously, the dozens of judges who just lost their jobs are totally going to sue, and I can't wait to see how the Marshall Court is going to rule on this. This will probably be epic. Well, here's the thing. The Supreme Court was supposed to meet in June of 1802 a full month before the repeal went into effect. But the funny thing is, the Republican Congress passed the Judiciary Act of 1802 in the meantime, which canceled the June term of the Supreme Court and reduced the court to a single four-week term beginning in February of 1803, while also establishing six regional circuit courts that the justices themselves would now have to ride along with district judges, and if you hear the sound of an avalanche in the distance, that's just the moral high ground falling out from beneath the Republicans' feet. So the Supreme Court wouldn't get to rule on the constitutionality of the questions raised by the repeal before the repeal went into effect, and the justices themselves needed to figure out if they were going to accept what had happened and ride the circuit courts as their jobs now seemed to demand, or if they were going to resist in some way. Marshall wrote to his colleagues, It having now become apparent that there will be no session of the Supreme Court, Holden in June next, and that we shall be directed to ride the circuits, before we can consult on the course proper to be taken by us, it appears to me proper That the judges should communicate their sentiments on this subject to each other that they may act understandingly and in the same manner. We can see here in action Marshall's concern with unanimity and figuring out how the court should proceed as one. That he's leaving open the possibility to resistance suggests that he's not certain that what's transpired was in fact legal but also that he's flexible on the question. Samuel Chase, a man who never met a brick wall that he didn't try to put his head through, was the only justice to object to the constitutionality of the repeal in the correspondence between the justices. And most of the others seem to just share the opinion expressed here by Cushing. It is not in our power to restore to them, meaning the Midnight Judges, their salaries, or them to the exercise of their offices. Declining the circuits will have no tendency to do either. Suppose we apply or represent or remonstrate to the President. What can he say? Gents, there is no law. I cannot control Congress. And you, and I know, we cannot control the majority. By June, the consensus was clear the judges would ride the circuit and the Supreme Court would acquiesce and avoid being embroiled in a partisan fight it would probably lose. For now, discretion had been the better part of valor, but an opportunity was rapidly approaching, and Marshall would soon have the chance to prove that he was more than the learned but gentle Jay, or the able but innocuous Ellsworth. And Jefferson would soon learn... That beneath Marshall's agreeable facade, beyond his genuine kindness, past his lax lounging manners, and apparent indolence, despite his fondness for jokes, there was a man who was ready to lay down the law. But that, friends, is a story for next time. Till then, why not do yourselves a favor and check out the Agora Podcast of the Month for September. The Lands of Leviathan, where hosts Peter and Brock have some fun analyzing concepts and theories from political science and international relations, using some of the best-loved sci-fi fantasy worlds there are. Interested in state formation in the zombie apocalypse? Ever wonder what would happen if the UN had the Jedi Council at its disposal? Or maybe you're curious to know what it would take to achieve a future like Star Trek, All this and more await you on iTunes or at thelandsofleviathan.com. Now, some of you may recall that American Biography is participating in the Endangered Words Project, which is trying to raise awareness for the 50 words and phrases most likely to go extinct from the American lexicon. I have incorporated one of the phrases from the Dictionary of American Regional English's list into today's episode. So here's a little challenge. Let's see if you can pick it out and post it on the American Biography Facebook page or tweet it at me at American underscore bio. For those of you that follow American Biography on social media, you may have seen recently that the show's gotten some very good press, and we've been mentioned in articles in both The Guardian and The Wall Street Journal. And even cooler, I was recently profiled in my alma mater's student-run newspaper, the Rowan University Wit, which I used to write for. So needless to say, this is an exciting time for me, and I'd love to keep the momentum going. So please consider, if you haven't already, giving the podcast a review on iTunes or wherever you download it from, or just tell some friends and family that you think might like it. I really appreciate it. Well, that's all for now. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, just send an email to Podcast at gmail.com Okay, thanks for listening, everybody, and I hope to talk to you again soon.